The Critical Care PRN is dedicated to fostering the role of critical care pharmacists as essential members of the multidisciplinary patient care team. The Critical Care PRN's goal is to optimize drug therapy outcomes by promoting excellence and innovation in clinical pharmacy practice, research, and education. For more information, including how to become a member, go to critprn.accp.com. Again, that website is critprn.accp.com. Welcome to Pharmacy to Dose, the critical care podcast, a partner of the ACCP Critical Care PRN and a member of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. And I'm your host, Nick Peters. Wherever you are and however you are listening, thank you. And it's a two for one in the same episode today as my special guest, Dave Dixon, uh, leads the episode off talking about his experience on the heart failure with preserved ejection fraction consensus decision pathway. This is great. I mean, listen to one of our peers talk about his experience on a national consensus document, as well as compare this to his experience on the chronic coronary artery disease guidelines, while also giving advice to us if if this is something that interests us, something that we want to do, how do we make that happen? And then, of course, we dive into all things heart failure with preserved ejection fraction or HEFPEF. So are HEFPEF exacerbations a thing? What is Dave's favorite HEFPEF landmark trial? How do we distinguish HEFPEF from heart failure mimics? Where do we go from here? And so, so much more. Uh, Sit back and relax because this is an absolutely fantastic episode today. Starting right now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And very lucky to be joined with Dave Dixon. Now, Dave is the professor and chair of the Department of Pharmacotherapy and Outcome Science in the VCU School of Pharmacy. And coming to us live from Richmond, Dave, welcome. How are you doing? I'm doing wonderful, and thanks so much for having me. I Today's episode is going to be really, really fun because I always, A, love highlighting pharmacists such as yourself who has who have done incredible work for us in the space of medicine being on writing committees of big governing bodies so not only do we a get a chance to step behind the curtain see what that process is a little bit but then we also get to pick your brain on literal the guideline the the statement that you were on talking about hef pef heart failure with preserved ejection fraction so thank you so much i think this is we're in for a real treat today The scientific document that we're going to be talking about today 
It's a decision pathway. Now, but for the listeners, right, we can see anything from guidelines to scientific statements to expert opinions. I mean, the list can go on and on. So when they talk about the nomenclature of these documents, how is that ultimately determined? That's a great question. And I think the easiest way to think about these different types of documents is the methodology that's used to create them. So this expert consensus decision pathway, uh, or even a scientific statement, is usually intended to bridge gaps between prior guidelines and new evidence or new interventions that become available. Uh, An expert consensus decision pathway doesn't use the same rigorous methodology that's used in a clinical practice guideline. And generally, these documents don't provide graded recommendations. However, they do include a diverse group of experts, uh, ideally from multiple disciplines, who do come to a consensus on key aspects of a particular topic to, again, fill those gaps kind of in between those guideline updates. And for those who may not know what we're necessarily referencing here, so this is the, the 2023 ACC Expert Consensus Decision Pathway on the Management of Heart Failure with Preserved Ejection Fraction. So the report of right, ACC, the American College of Cardiology Solution Set Oversight Committee. So published in May. So so people have, have had possibly some time to look at it, but if you're not in the world of, of cardiology and heart failure, this might you, you might have missed this. And so I just wanted to, to point out this is the document that we're going to be kind of using as the, as the backbone for a little bit of, of our discussion here. Now, Dave, you've been a busy man um, because within the last two months now, you've not only been an author of the Expert Consensus Decision Pathway, but you've also been on the chronic coronary disease treatment guidelines. Now, I don't, we could dive into the clinical things of this and spend probably 10, 12 hours, but from a, a planning and a creation perspective, what are the differences as an author between these two decision pathways and guidelines? That's a great question, and it's really been a great experience to be a part of both of these documents and experience uh, the differences between how these documents are put together. As you can imagine, clinical practice guidelines take much longer, right? So we're talking about a much more formalized process. These are guidelines that are jointly put together between the American Heart Association and the American College of Cardiology. They also partner with other professional organizations. And in this case, the American College of Clinical Pharmacy was actually the pharmacy society uh, representation in this particular guideline. And as I mentioned, uh, the clinical practice guideline is going to follow a much more rigorous process. A formalized systematic review is going to be done to look at the entire literature base. We're going to create recommendations. We're going to formally vote on them. Uh, And as as a writer, as an author, Uh, generally sections are assigned uh, to individuals to draft that initial uh, recommendation and supportive uh, text. And then as a writing group, of course, uh, each of those are thoroughly discussed and and then again, eventually formally voted on. The consensus document is a little bit different. It's certainly uh, faster (laughs) to put that together uh, because again, we're not having to work through such a uh, rigorous process, which is absolutely needed for the clinical practice guidelines. 
However, uh, as we know, busy clinicians sometimes uh, need just straightforward guidance, uh, particularly if, again, we've got new evidence or new treatments and that guideline's not been updated. And again, that's where these consensus decision type documents are really valuable for the everyday clinician. So you mentioned that the the guideline process is going to be a little bit longer. And I think all of us who, if, if I asked you which one of these was longer, we'd probably guess that, right? But when you, when you say longer, what is that? Is that like months longer? Are we looking at like years? Like generally speaking, it'll be a little different, I know. But what's the general timeline of when you say longer, like how much longer? Sure. So currently the guidelines that are produced jointly by ACC and AHA uh, we have a, a joint committee that oversees all of the guidelines from the standpoint of which guidelines should be updated next, when should that get started. There are representatives or liaisons from that joint committee that serve on each of the guidelines to, again, ensure that processes are followed. They may help draft that initial outline. And so from that process of that initial kickoff to where you actually see the guidelines uh, published, for example, you're you're easily looking at closer to two years uh, ish. And so, I will say that ACC and AHA, what you will see in the years to come, uh, is more frequent updates. And so, there have been some changes in that process to ensure that guidelines can be updated uh, more quickly and and can keep up with the emerging evidence uh, that's coming out. An expert consensus document, such as uh, this HEFPEF statement, comes together much faster. So uh, from start to finish, that may look something like six to 12 months at most. So, uh, and obviously with clinical practice guidelines, sometimes things can take longer than two years. Um, but in that one to two year time frame, I think is, is certainly the goal. What was the most difficult part? You know, and was there, was there maybe a part that as you went into this process or as you came out of it, that was maybe unexpectedly challenging? That's a great question. And I think for me, especially the first time uh, being on a practice guideline uh, and realizing that, oh, these sections, I'm the person that's drafting the initial version, right? Uh, I'm drafting and coming up with what I think the correct level of evidence and graded recommendations should be. So it's it's pretty high pressure in the sense that you have to present this to your peers and other experts. Uh, and the other thing too is just realizing that the process takes time. Um, but at the same time, we have to get it right. These documents impact our patients. Uh, obviously they impact the, the care that we provide every day. Uh, they can also have policy implications. They could have impacts on uh, you know, insurance coverage of medications. And so uh, it was really just eye-opening and, and I have a much greater appreciation of the work that goes into creating these documents. And, um, you know, you're, when you look at the writing committee, right, it's it's you and a nurse, an advanced practice provider and everyone else's physician. So I'm sure you probably feel a little more like pressure. You're the one pharmacist you don't want to, you know, not that you would do this, but I'm sure in your mind, you're like, you don't want to do a bad job and suddenly pharmacists aren't invited on, you know, you feel a little bit more pressure when you're one of the other multidisciplinary kind of components coming in, I'm sure, or at least that's how I would feel. 
No, you're exactly right. And it definitely is. It's great on one hand, right? Because mm-hmm. if, if this goes pretty well, then that's going to reflect well, uh, not just on me, but the profession as a whole. And uh, at the same time, uh, again, that just makes it really all the more um, enjoyable and rewarding to just have that opportunity. And, you know, I do want to shout out for the chronic coronary disease guideline that Barbara Wiggins uh, was the other PharmD on that guideline uh, document and was the representative from ACCP. And so on that one, it was great just because yep. I kind of had someone to, to share that burden with. And uh, so, yeah, you're spot on. Well, you did an awesome job. We're going to get to go through that. But now I, I have to ask, you know, they, the document focuses on on eight issues. Do do you as the writing committee, do you all like brainstorm and pick those issues or are those more kind of cascaded down from those large national governing body organizations? Sure. So in this case, the American College of Cardiology held a uh, roundtable discussion on HFPEF and they periodically have these roundtables, and they're typically on very focused topics or areas where uh, they feel like they need to bring uh, different partners together uh, to determine how to, for example, you know, uh, improve the treatment of a certain condition. So in this case, we're talking about HFPAF. And one of the things that came out of that uh, uh, discussion was realizing that Cardiologists aren't the only individuals that take care of these patients, right? So if we're talking about HFPEF patients, typically they may be presenting to their primary care provider complaining of shortness of breath, right? Um, so this document uh, is really intended to uh, reach that audience. Uh, and so based on that, certainly from that roundtable discussion, there was uh, kind of some, some guidance there, but certainly the writing group also kind of took those ideas and, and polished them up a bit. So I would say it was sort of the shared process. It sounds like honestly the best way to do it is you start with ideas, but then you all get to, to make them your own based on what you think that should represent. So that's, that feels like the right. best of both worlds because you don't want to spend all your time on something and then they're like, well, wait, you didn't talk about this, right? <laughs> For sure. What was the biggest thing that you learned through this process? Um, because, you know, you've been involved, I know, with a lot of publications and other things, but you mentioned this was your first time being on one of these guideline writing right. committees. So I think the biggest takeaway, honestly, is that our roles as pharmacists on these writing groups is well-respected. And I think as pharmacists, sometimes we we always feel like that we're, we're on an island by ourselves and that our, our our colleagues in different disciplines don't quite understand the value that we bring to the table. And I will tell you that being on, you know, both of these writing groups, that was not my experience at all. And in fact, uh, I 100% felt like I was uh, a member of the committee. Uh, There were instances, particularly related to pharmacotherapy recommendations where, uh, you know, my opinion was specifically, you know, inquired about. And uh, in terms of, what section you're involved in in terms of writing, uh, there's a respect of, oh, well, the pharmacist here is certainly going to be the right person to uh, write this section related to pharmacotherapy. And so uh, that was really reassuring in a way. And I think, again, for for listeners and, and pharmacy colleagues out there, just to know that our representation on these committees, it's not a token representation. 
uh, we are involved and we are a part of that writing group. So, I mean, this is the American College of Cardiology, right? So you're working with cardiologists. Correct. And so it's not like, you know, uh, we know that they can be opinionated. And so the fact that you felt that, you felt that feeling, that camaraderie, they're turning to you. That's probably a great feeling. And that's, I agree. Right. I was probably a little surprised hearing that. So that's, but surprised in like the best way possible, right? Because, right. you know, collaboration is the future. And the the long, the harder we wait, the more issues we create with that. So seeing guidelines and writing committees going towards that, I think is awesome. Absolutely. Now you mentioned, um, talking about other pharmacists and colleagues and peers. And as we move towards where hopefully we're seeing more PharmDs on these statements, for those who are maybe looking to be more involved, possibly on those committees, what advice would you, would you give to those who are listening? So I think it all starts with having a strong clinical background, right? I mean, that is fundamentally the most important factor. Uh, it is also really important that you're, you have a great grasp on the literature base that's out there. And so those literature evaluation skills, being able to translate the evidence we have into practice uh, is, is really the foundation. And then on top of that, being actively involved in organizations that are involved in guidelines, right? So, uh, for example, in the American College of Cardiology, there are committees that you can nominate yourself or someone else can nominate you for that uh, are involved in guideline or expert consensus statement type of work. And so, again, through networking and having that support from your peers within an organization can also help. Uh, I think that typically for writing committees, they're certainly looking for a combination of, of different uh, competencies. And so it doesn't necessarily mean that you are a, a researcher with you know, a bunch of publications. Uh, but I think, uh, again, that foundation of clinical practice, uh, understanding of the evidence base, and being involved in organizations and being someone that's visible that others recognize as someone with expertise in whatever subject it is. And I'll also put in a plug for uh, some work I did with ACCP, uh, where I was fortunate enough to chair a committee to write up a document to uh, go more into depth about how pharmacists could get involved in guidelines, but also just providing an overview of guideline development processes and, and a lot of what we've, we've just been discussing. So for those that want to dive deeper, uh, you can look that up in the journal of the American College of Clinical Pharmacy. Yeah, that'll be featured on, on the reference list, the, the overview of clinical practice guideline development with the application to pharmacy practice and roles for pharmacists. I see another friend of the pod, one of my mentors, Craig Beavers on there. So anytime, I mean, these are, these are heavy hitters. These are authors who have been involved with these committees. So this is an awesome document for all to save away. And I'm sure the listeners are like, okay, well, yes, Dave is on this because look where he is or, or Nick is saying this because he has a podcast, right? But it literally, we, we didn't start here, right? It all starts from literally like you shoot an email if you're interested or, hey, I kind of want to get more involved in it. And it literally just starts from there. All of us are looking for help. If you've been on one of these committees and one of these organizations, we love help. We love interested people coming in and wanting to. So I just want to like take back that like it, we welcome all help. And as if you want to be 
involved or you're interested in being involved, you can get as you can dive in as much as you want. It just takes a simple email and a request. So I just want to let it know, like this isn't like a you have to join a club and then suddenly you get it right. It 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 it's we're we're a uh, what's the phrase right? Pharmacy is a small world, and so that's where it, it starts there and then it goes. So um, awesome. I love I love you highlighting. I always love talking to other pharmacists who have done really cool things like this because a I think it's always great to go behind the curtain a little bit, talk about these guidelines. Like, wait, why has it taken so? I bet it's going to take you a while before you ask, why haven't these guidelines been updated recently, right? (laughs) (laughs) Um, But talking about that, but then also letting us know, hey, how did you get here? What are some advice for those who are wanting to do that? So, Dave, I appreciate you taking us a little bit of behind the curtain, talking about the, the process of the writing committee with this expert consensus decision pathway. And now, something that's probably near and dear to your heart, right? HEFPEF, heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. Now, Dave, we have to start with that. Why did we even need an expert consensus document on HEFPEF when our, correct me if I'm wrong, but those heart failure guidelines, they were just updated in 2022, true? That is correct. So, as I mentioned before, there, there was this ACC roundtable uh, discussion on HEFPEF, and Again, the intent there was to try to bridge the gap between the cardiology community and primary care, who, again, is these individuals that are typically first engaging uh, these patients or seeing these patients in clinic. There had also been new evidence emerge regarding the role of SOT2 inhibitors in HEF-PEF. So it seemed appropriate to create a document that addressed both of these issues and a heart failure guideline, such as the one that was published uh, in 2022 is trying to encompass all aspects of heart failure, right? And so some of the, the details and the nuance with HEFPEF, uh, you know, you're not really able to get into some of those. And so this expert consensus document allows you to go a little bit deeper uh, into uh, aspects of HEFPEF uh, diagnosis and management. Uh, and so that was really the rationale. So the... What is the definition of HEFPEF? And I guess I'm asking because some of us, we grew up hearing diastolic and diastolic heart failure. So is HEFPEF the same thing as diastolic heart failure? So that is a million-dollar question. <laughs> uh, but all jokes aside, uh, HEFPEF is generally described as you need a clinical diagnosis of heart failure, right? So we don't have just one single test to diagnose heart failure in general. It's a clinical diagnosis based on symptoms and presentation. Half-half, those patients are going to have an ejection fraction that's 50% or greater, and it can't be attributable to valvular disease, pericardial disease, certain cardiomyopathies such as hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And additionally, we're looking for some evidence of either congestion or elevated natriuretic peptides. So an elevated BNP or NT pro BNP based on, of course, your institutional preference. Half-path patients are typically going to have a smaller left ventricle with a thickened left ventricle wall compared to half-ref patients uh, where we're typically going to see this enlarged, uh, weak left ventricle. And that's due to the concentric remodeling that limits the left ventricle's ability to adequately feel with blood. And that is where that 
diastolic dysfunction sort of comes in. And it's certainly more complicated than this, but this is just a summary. And, and I think I, you know, still view half-tef as a heart failure uh, state where the primary issue is a filling problem. Half-ref is primarily a pumping problem. So I think when most of us say heart failure, I, I think instantly we're thinking of half-ref, like res- patients with reduced ejection fraction and its associated complications. So what are, when we think about our HEF-PEF population, what are challenges unique to those patients? So I think it's a mistake to think that HEF-PEF is somehow more benign than HEF-REF, but that I believe is a common uh, you know, misunderstanding of HEF-PEF uh, because in, in reality, about half of all heart failure hospitalizations occur in patients with HEF-PEF. And if you look at total resource utilization, it's actually slightly higher in patients with HEF-PEF compared to HEF-REF. There's also a delay in the time to the time of diagnosis in HEF-PEF. Five-year survival rates are actually similar between HEF-PEF and HEF-REF. So mortality is still uh, an outcome that we have to be concerned with. And historically, we've had very limited treatment options that move the needle on mortality and even fewer options to move the needle on uh, symptom management beyond just controlling the underlying uh, comorbidities. And in HEFPEF, these patients are usually more likely to have underlying hypertension, obesity, diabetes, kidney disease, sleep apnea. And so a lot of uh, metabolically unhealthy patients are, are typically those that we're seeing that develop HEFPEF. Not that HEFREF patients, you know, don't present with those comorbidities, mm-hmm. but they're actually slightly more common in HEFPEF. So you mentioned that there are a lot of similarities. So how, how do these patients acutely present to the hospital? I guess, like, are, are HEFPEF acute exacerbations, is that a thing? <laughs> Good question. So it is indeed a thing. Uh, half-bath patients are typically going to present with notable dyspnea, fatigue, often lower extremity edema. And actually some of the worst edema that I've ever seen in practice was a half-bath patient who actually came to see me in clinic. Uh, of course, we, we quickly uh, navigated that patient to the emergency room. Uh, presenting natriuretic peptide levels can also be a bit lower in half-bath. Uh, and that is especially more common in patients with obesity because we know that excess adipose tissue, or at least it's thought to kind of chew up BNP and degrade it. So as a result, when you check a level, it's slightly lower. And so when we're using the BNP to maybe help confirm a diagnosis of heart failure, you could you know, possibly misdiagnose that patient, if that makes sense. So half-half acute exacerbations are, are definitely a thing. Uh, I, I will say, and we can get into this more later, but certainly the uh, the management of that edema is a bit trickier because our margin for error is a little smaller with those HEF-PEF patients because they have this, you know, thick, inflexible left ventricle, uh, so we can easily over-diurese them. So certainly HEF-PEF can present, uh, you know, in the acute setting uh, for sure. And as we're talking through this, I kind of see the similarities between 
hef-pef and hef-ref with delirium and thinking of hyper and hypoactive. And when you think of delirium, you think of hyperactive, right? When you think of heart failure, you think of the uh, heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, but the the hypoactive delirium or the hef-pef, we know less about it. We don't have as many treatments. There's a little bit of a tight rope, so it's almost it's harder to recognize and treat it somehow. I'm trying to think of a, that's like my my brain, the critical care brain. That's the the similarities I think of when you were talking about that is how, you know, it might even be more, you talked about all the limitations of being able to even diagnose or see it. It seems like it could be a little uh, a little more challenging to recognize these compared to some of our, our classic HEFREF presentations. Right. You're absolutely right. And those HEFREF patients too, right? They're more likely to have underlying ischemic heart disease. Yep. And so they're coming in or they've had a recent MI and, you know, your suspicion for, you know, HEFREF is pretty high from the get-go. So probably my favorite thing on the on the decision pathway statement is it's figure seven and it's called the approach to individuals with dyspnea. And so what I want to do is take what they did in the guidelines. We're going to do this on the podcast. And so what what the what the decision pathway does is they introduce two individuals and they basically show the mimics and show one of these could and one of these could not have HEFPEF. So let's go through this. So let's introduce two patients. They come to the ED and they have dyspnea on exertion. So patient A, 72-year-old female, hypertension, combination therapy. She's on four agents. She's got AFib, CKD stage three, and her BMI is 36. So we got got one patient there. And then patient B, 66-year-old male with AFib, BMI of 31, with NASH cirrhosis. So based on the information that we have here, correct, what is the likelihood comparing these patients that one is HEFPEF and one is a mimic? How can we kind of help delineate or differentiate between those patients when they present to the ED? Yeah, it's a great question. And I agree completely that, you know, this was one of the aspects of this document that I think was really valuable uh, to clinicians to at least consider uh, the mimics that are out there. And, you know, the the scoring tools in terms of helping the clinician determine the the likelihood of HEFPEF, it's a great place to start. But you know, I do think it's important to remember that this is a clinical diagnosis, right? And so in both of these scenarios uh, with uh, their H2, uh, you know, HEFPEF scores of six and seven uh, could certainly, you know, tilt you toward uh, the, a greater likelihood of HEFPEF. HEFPEF. Um, in both of these scenarios, I, I think it would be important that uh, the echocardiogram or parameters be reviewed because that can also provide some objective evidence of HEFPEF. Um, right heart catheterizations can also be helpful to look for hemodynamic abnormalities, such as a high filling pressure, which we would typically see uh, in a patient with, with HEFPEF. Um, the dyspnea and edema are, are certainly unique aspects to heart failure in general, but as we know, there are non-cardiac causes of these symptoms, and someone with uh, acute kidney failure, someone with anemia, a patient with uh, morbid obesity that is deconditioned. Uh, there are various pulmonary conditions that, that can also cause these symptoms. And again, that's where I think additional diagnostic workup in terms of echocardiogram, possibly a right heart cap, can really be valuable. And obviously, as pharmacists, we're not involved in that, but I think it's important to know uh, that that's going to be part of the evaluation of that patient. And the point of you know, kind of including that that particular figure was to really encourage clinicians, again, to look for these mimics 
and, and make sure that they rule them out before assuming that that patient uh, is actually presenting with heart failure. And so you mentioned the importance of the echocardiogram to really help with, with differentiating them. And so the kind of breaking that down, the big is the big difference between uh, a HEFPEF mimic and a non-cardiac kind of HEFPEF mimic being that it's one of them is directly a cardiac issue and one is a non-cardiac issue and the echocardiogram can help basically delineate and differentiate those two. Yeah, I think that's a good way of thinking about it. And again, I think in in the example of, okay, is there a, a, a cardiac mimic? So, right, so if we look at the echocardiogram, we can assess uh, the functionality of, say, the, the valves, right? So if we look at the echo and it looks like, okay, well, this patient has some form of valvular heart disease, well, then that's going to be completely different, right, than, than your sort of uh, HEF-PEF or even just heart failure presentation. From a pulmonary standpoint, right, if someone comes in with a dyspnea, well, we've got to also consider the possibility that they have maybe undiagnosed obstructive lung disease, or do they have other indicators that might suggest they're actually coming in with a pulmonary embolism, right? Um, and so it, I, I think the way I, I look at this is, okay, well, let's, let's rule out these mimics. Let's, let's make sure that we have marked those off of the differential. And then as we narrow that down, uh, and if you look at both the patient's presentation clinically, as well as the objective uh, evidence that you can get from, again, the BNP or pro-BNT, uh, NT pro-BNP uh, in the echocardiogram, that's going to then help tremendously in terms of making sure that we are dealing with HEFPEP and not something else. So as we, we were talking about our new nomenclature in heart failure, and I understand, right, the differences between HEFREF and HEFPEF, and you've done a great job of really delineating the differences, but also some of the similarities. Now, clinically, for those at the bedside, my question is, are there big differences in our management of patients who say they have HEFPEF compared to those who have the HEF-MRF, right? Basically, the moderately reduced ejection fraction. So that EF, basically in the 40s, like 49 to 41. Like clinically for us, I understand from a research guideline, all that perspective, the difference, but how much is our treatment going to necessarily change at the bedside as those patients basically progress from HEFPEF to HEFREF, right? As they, as their ejection fraction moves. Yeah. So the first thing I'll say here is for listeners who uh, maybe are, are hearing that nomenclature for the first time, I think it would be important to go back to the, the 2022 heart failure guidelines and to review. There's a great table there that goes deep into, you know, the technical differences between, uh, you know, these different types of, of heart failure. And uh, I think it's important to remember that whether we're talking about, you know, heart failure with, you know, the moderately reduced EF or heart failure with mildly reduced, all the different variations, that the it's representing a wide range of what's going on with the patient. And someone that is in that 40 to 49 range, it could be due to improvement in HEF-REF, right? So maybe they their presenting ejection fraction was 25, 30%. Now we're looking six, 12 months down the road and their EF is improving, which we would want to see. It could also be the deterioration of a patient with HEF-PEF who had an ejection fraction of, say, 55, 60%, and then now they're presenting with uh, that lower ejection fraction. So that's where I think those objective measures are helpful. 
from a management perspective, there are no specific prospective randomized controlled trials uh, in this population of these individuals with an EF in that you know, mid 40 to 49 type range, uh, at least not dedicated to that group, they are uh, certainly uh, looked at from the standpoint of post hoc analyses of other trials. They are subgroups that we look at from other heart failure studies. So it, it seems that these patients respond well to the standard guideline directed medical therapy that we use for patients with HEF-REF. So that's essentially how we're managing these patients until better evidence emerges. And ultimately, you know, we're, we're going to need some dedicated trials to really delineate, uh, you know, if we need to approach these patients differently. It's also important to remember that, you know, we have to repeat the echo in those patients to evaluate that EF over time to monitor changes because, again, the EF is on a continuum. Uh, it's not a, a number that, that, that that's okay. Here's your EF, that's your EF for life. Uh, and so it's important that we continue to evaluate these patients. That's a really good breakdown of that. And definitely encourage everyone to go back and, and look at those guidelines, listen to that previous episode we've had with Kate Kulig talking more, more overview of heart failure. Now, Dave, what has changed? Because I'm used to having almost exclusively negative or you know what we'll say neutral studies in hefpef but recently i think we found some agents that uh buck the trend a little bit so so what has changed broadly with our our hefpef management strategy so yeah i think one big thing that changed in recent years is that our pharmaceutical industry finally started to pay attention to these patients right and as i mentioned before when you look at uh, the totality of the heart failure population, the HEF-PEF population is starting to outpace the HEF-REF population. Uh, and so, and we have a huge gap in care with, with that group. So, you know, HEF-REF certainly, uh, and deservedly so, received a lot of attention for many years. Uh, but we finally had, you know, have had trials recently that have specifically been conducted in HEF-PEF populations. And again, a good bit of that has been driven by interest from the pharmaceutical industry, there have been some NIH-funded trials as well. We still have a long way to go uh, to identify interventions that really change the trajectory of the mortality rate associated with HFPAF, uh, but we've definitely had a number of recent successes, and it's a really exciting time, especially from my perspective on, on the ambulatory side of, of seeing these patients in clinic. And, you know, we give them kind of the standard, uh, you know, therapies that we have for HFREF, and just not really seeing them improve and, and seeing those patients come in visit after visit and just not being able to offer them much. It's been a really exciting time over the past few years to say, hey, here's a medication that we can actually utilize that, you know, will at least maybe help you feel better and keep you out of the hospital. Um, that's been just awesome to be able to do in practice and provide something more for these patients. What a great perspective. I hadn't actually, as someone who's not in ambulatory care, I hadn't necessarily thought of it from that way, but I'm, my guess is, yeah, because sometimes patients are probably doing everything that you tell them and things are, their symptoms might not be getting better and things. So being able to actually do more than, I'm sorry, we're doing everything we can has to be really, what, a, what an awesome insight. I love that you, that you shared that. Now, the, the, the decision pathway, table two, I would, I would uh, direct the listeners to, and it, it is the, they highlight 
the selected randomized controlled trials in individuals with HEFPEF. So they highlight five, but I'm not going to give you five options, Dave. You get to you get one option. So if you had a most important or your favorite landmark HEFPEF RCT, what would that be? And the five listed, so the five listed is Deliver, Emperor Preserved, Topcat, Paragon HF, and Charm Preserved. So if you had to pick one, and you can go off board, that's just what the what the guidelines listed. What would that be? So I know you said one, but I'm still going to cheat anyway and pick <laughs> two. So um, I'm going to lump the liver and emperor preserve together since they are both looking at SGLT2 inhibitors. Uh, so I'm going to cheat there. Uh, and you know, certainly there's some some nuanced differences between deliver and emperor preserved. But again, I think if you look at the outcomes of those trials. These were the first HEF-HEF trials to hit their primary endpoint. That is huge. So the other trials mentioned there, right, kind of fell short, and we kind of had to dig a bit mm-hmm. to, to find the, the little grains of, of benefit. Um, now, it's certainly true that in both delivered and Emperor Preserved that uh, the, the, the benefit was primarily driven by reduction in heart failure-related hospitalizations. But if we can reduce heart failure-related hospitalizations by 20 to 30% with a once-daily drug that is generally well-tolerated, that is a huge advancement in the HEFPEF field. And in my own practice, uh, in, in utilizing these therapies in these patients, I've seen significant improvement in their symptoms. I've seen patients uh, come in just, they're like different people. And actually being able, in, in some cases, to you know, completely drop their loop diuretic. Uh, and I think if we can improve patients' symptom control, uh, improve their quality of life, and keep them out of the hospital, that's pretty amazing compared to where we were just a few years ago. So I think that to me, that's really been the most impactful, uh, you know, evidence that we've had uh, come out in recent years. And these aren't the, the oldest of those trials, the Emperor Preserved, it's not even two years old. It was published ahead of print in August, late August of 2021. Deliver was, was EPUBed ahead of print late August of 2022. So we are literally less than two years from these, from these articles. So I just want to put in perspective that we're not talking about articles that are a decade or even five years old. These are still very much practice changing and new articles. Are these new articles in cardiology? Is two, is two years new? That almost because the the literature is happening so quickly. I almost feel like we're we're in the semi new, right? We're not like brand new. We're like the the used when you get the used car that's got a thousand miles on it. It is uh, it, it is a rapid paced environment, I will say, <laughs> in the cardiology space. Uh, but it's also fantastic just because we have more options for our patients. So. Now let's let's dive into these into these treatments and kind of talking about our, our cornerstones of treatment. And before we get into the individual HEFPEF treatment agents, thinking more broadly, at what ejection fraction do we initiate treatment in HEFPEF? And, be, and I ask this because in that decision pathway for men, it lists only starting when their EF is less than 60%. And I guess, is it common for EFs to be higher than that in HEFPEF? And is, if it is, is that one where we're just watching and like monitoring them and we're doing non-pharmacologic things? Or, or how does our treatment initiation kind of get approached? So first and foremost, 
the initiation of treatment should be based on the clinical diagnosis and not the ejection fraction, right? So if we have a clinical diagnosis of HEFPEF and that ejection fraction, whatever it might be, 55, 60, uh, somewhere in that range, uh, then we're going to need to initiate guideline-directed medical therapy. And again, it's going to look slightly different in half path, um, but we're going we're gonna to need to start that now. Uh, we, it's not something where we want to wait. Now, if someone has not yet developed heart failure symptoms, and so uh, thinking about kind of an early stage uh, heart failure, we're talking about prevention, you know, then certainly that's where we still want to focus on managing those underlying risk factors. So the hypertension needs to be controlled weight management. If they've got sleep apnea, we need to get that managed. And so we're really focusing on those underlying risk factors. Um, so you've also brought up, you know, a difference here in terms of the ejection fraction cutoffs uh, between uh, males and females. So there's an important sex difference here in that women do typically have a smaller uh, left ventricular chamber size. So they'll often have higher left ventricular ejection fractions compared to men. So this may also explain why women with HEFPEF may respond more favorably to these therapies. And that is something that kind of came out of the subgroup analyses of some of the trials. And so that's where there's another difference between the guidelines and this consensus statement document. So in this consensus statement document, uh, we can make clinicians aware of that nuance it is founded in subgroup analyses. So we do have to proceed with caution, right? Whereas in a clinical practice guideline, we typically aren't going to make some class 1A recommendation, you know, based off of a subgroup analysis, right? That's just not going to happen. That's not great evidence-based medicine. Um, and so I think that's another difference between the two documents. Um, so in terms of that sex difference, you know, that, that difference, that physiological difference, I think, uh, you know, at least helps explain why you see the, the, the different recommendations here in this document. And I appreciate you pointing out the, that symptoms drive it. And I, and I asked that because sometimes you'll see echoes and it'll say hyperdynamic EF 70%, right? And if they're having those symptoms, that shouldn't, your argument should not be our EF is greater than 60%. Don't start it. So I appreciate you kind of clarifying in that it is, it's symptom driven with other things as, as kind of, additional support where you need it um, in that setting there. Now, when you talked about, you had talked about um, earlier, we talked about HEFPEF like exacerbations and how diuresing can actually be a little more challenging sometime in these patients. So as we go through our individual treatments for HEFPEF patients, starting with loop directs and that symptom relief, how aggressive are we with diuresis in this population? Because I know with, right, with HEF or F, it's let's go, right? No holds barred. We want to be a little more aggressive. Do you take a different approach for our HEF-PEF patients? So generally we do, and, and certainly across the spectrum of heart failure, right, we, we use loop diuretics to primarily reduce congestion, improve symptoms. We have very little evidence that they do much more than that. They may help reduce the risk of heart failure-related hospitalizations. And there's really been this ongoing debate or concern, right, that overuse of loop diuretics may actually worsen outcomes and from a mortality perspective. And so, uh, you know, we just as a general rule of thumb, we want to use them judiciously. Now, in HEFPEF, optimizing volume status is certainly a bit more challenging just because there is a more narrow window between being hypovolemic and being volume overloaded. And so 
you know, and our patients, particularly in the ambulatory setting, right, where I'm sending them out the door, may not see them again for a month, two months, three months. Yep. We are a bit more conservative in making sure that uh, we're not over diuresing these individuals. And we're also trying to, in a lot of cases, get better blood pressure control because hypertension is highly prevalent in HEPPEF patients. And often it's difficult to control. But at the same time, right, if I over-treat them and if I'm really pushing the loop diuretics, that's going to increase the likelihood that that patient ends up with a syncopal episode and really has a major issue with, with hypotension. So in general, for loop diuretics and HEPPEF patients, we're going to use probably uh, you know, generally lower doses than in the HEFREF population. And if they're also on an SGLT2 inhibitor, right, we're also going to be a bit more cautious. And I've seen, the, you know, anecdotally here, um, full disclosure, but anecdotally in HEFREF patients, I've seen more of those patients come off of their loop diuretic completely after starting an SGLT2 inhibitor than I have it in the HEFREF population. So um, I think it's, it's great to just minimize the use of loops across the board, but uh, use them when needed, but be careful. That's a perfect lead-in, not only to to your favorite landmark studies, but to the right the the new class right that's really making changes in the heart failure world, and it's our SGLT two inhibitors. Now, the two trials you you mentioned it included two different agents. So, when we're thinking of the SGLT2 inhibitors, is one agent considered superior to the others or is it, are we seeing more of a class effect? So I'm pretty comfortable at this point saying that it's a class effect. I mean, we have two, two different trials. Uh, we don't have head to head, you know, studies between these agents and we, we never will. Probably we'll never probably will. Have, yep. <laughs> yeah. The best thing that we'll get is some real world evidence type of studies. Uh, but those are probably going to be, you know, down the road uh, because these drugs have to be used first. And, you know, road evidence, I think, is very important. It's not something to be completely dismissed, but, you know, it is more difficult to control for various confounders. Uh, we've also got, you know, data with sotagliflozin, which has, right, a little bit more SLT1 uh, activity as well uh, and some favorable outcomes with, with that particular agent. Uh, we don't yet have a generically available SGLT2 inhibitor. Uh, I believe that uh, canagliflozin is likely to be the first generically approved SGLT2 inhibitor. We don't have that big heart failure trial with that particular agent. Uh, but at this point, you know, I think it's safe to say it's probably a class effect. I think either of these two, uh, you know, dapagliflozin and empagliflozin, uh, given that, you know, the cost to the patient is going to be probably the same, right? Uh, I think as long as they're on one, you know, I'd rather, we're still fighting that battle, right? I'm yep. just trying to get on an SLT2 inhibitor. So, uh, you know, we can have an academic debate about the two trials and the differences, but at the end of the day, just get them on an SLT2 inhibitor, please. And with one going generic, right, and costs, right, all these drugs, right? Sometimes you go from zero to five drugs in one hospitalization. So, as that becomes an issue, it's the statement, right? You can give them the 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 best, the guideline directed number one therapy, but if they can't afford it, if they can't take it, it doesn't matter. So exactly. So yeah, I can only imagine the headaches that you get of just trying to get these things approved with all the evidence that we have. So I wish the listeners could see Dave's face right now. Of of it, I think it's it's hitting home in a real way. So let's let's change topics. 
Let's go. Let's talk about our uh, mineralocorticoid receptor antagonists, or spironolactone, a plerinone. So, where do you stand on the use of MRAs in HEFPEF? Because I know, from an outsider perspective, it feels like it can be a polarizing question. So, I'm a big fan of using MRAs in these patients for really two reasons. Uh, number one, hypertension, as I've mentioned, is highly prevalent in patients with HEFPEF, it's often a big driver of why they have HEFPEF. And we know that MRAs are excellent at treating treatment-resistant hypertension, which I see a lot of in my practice. And these are generally going to be once-daily medications uh, and, for the most part, well-tolerated. And sure, we have to monitor you know, potassium and kidney function, but we have to do that with ACEs and ARBs and ARNIs, right? So um, number two, it, as I mentioned, it's once a day generally. It's inexpensive to patients. It's cheap. And it may provide some symptomatic relief. And maybe it'll prevent a hospitalization or two, depending on your interpretation of, you know, the trials that have been done and, and the controversies there. And as I mentioned before, in this population, we really haven't had a lot to offer them. So I'll take offering this, them this medication uh, class over just not doing anything. Um, and again, I see so much uncontrolled hypertension in my HEFPEF population that I'm almost always needing to reach for, for something to help get that blood pressure under control. And the MRAs are just a great addition in those treatment-resistant hypertension patients. I love that you re- you mentioned that. I think there's a there's a study that that shows the evidence for spironolactone as that that add on agent. It's one of my favorites. I can't find the paper now, of course, but I like that you dropped the that pathway per- to trial. Yeah, <laughs> there we go. Thank thank you, Dave. Yes, because that's one of my favorites. I feel like you think of it exclusively as that heart failure agent. And you forget how good it is as an antihypertensive. So I love that you you dropped that little pearl for us. So going into our, our ARBs, ACEs, ARNIs, so is there any reason that patients shouldn't be started first line on an ARNI compared to an ARB or I guess we'll maybe like whisper ACEs? Like aren't, aren't our ARNIs the standard of care? Why am I seeing some patients coming in still on ARBs and things? Yes, yeah, so that's a great point. Uh, so as I mentioned, again, you know, hypertension really prevalent in these patients difficult to control. And, and so I really like using the ARNI because of that additional blood pressure lowering that you get compared to an ARB or an ACE inhibitor. Um, you know, one of the reasons you may not see them on an ARNI is in patients that have that history of angioedema with an ACE inhibitor, right? Because uh, the, the ARNI includes valsartan and secubitril, which is the nephrolysin inhibitor, uh, but it also inhibits the breakdown of bradykinin. Uh, which can then build up and result in angioedema. Um, some patients won't have significant hypertension, and maybe we're dealing with low blood pressure, and so switching to that ARNI is just not feasible. Um, there's also the elephant in the room, uh, and, and that's cost, right? And yep. kind of the financial toxicity, which I love this term, um, that the patient deals with, with we have all these great, options, but many of them are brand name. And these patients are dealing with multiple comorbidities and all these brand name medications, and they really just can't handle it. So that can be a barrier. Although again, I think, you know, insurance coverage of um, RNAs uh, is, is much better than it was a few years ago. Um, 
as far as ACE inhibitors, which I heard you whisper, uh, I, I really don't start anyone on an ACE inhibitor nowadays. I mean, we've got a plethora of evidence showing that the ARBs are just as effective. And so I'm usually going with Valsartan if I'm starting, uh, you know, um, kind of RAS inhibition from the, from the get-go. And then patients don't have to deal with the cough. I don't have to worry about it. Uh, and then later, if we did want to switch to an ARNI, we can switch right away. And we don't have to wait for that 36-hour washout period that we have to do when we go from an ACE inhibitor to an ARNI. So I'm definitely team ARB and Valsartan. And if we can do it, ARNIs should, should absolutely um, be the next step. Love that. I am also team non-ACE inhibitor as starting our first-line therapy. So you mentioned the washout period and things. Um, what are what are considerations we need to think of as patients are getting switched to potentially ARNI or that that GDMT therapy for inpatients? Yeah, so certainly we want to uh, make sure that uh, you know electrolytes are, are well managed. Uh, looking at patients that you know if they're there right and they're in acute renal failure or they have some major injury to the kidney, then some of these things may just kind of need to wait. Um, and then again, that 36 hour, um, washout period, uh, is to allow those bradykinin levels to normalize before we then start the ARNI, which of course is going to, you know, create that uptick as well. And then as I mentioned, you know, blood pressure for sure. So in patients that, uh, you know, are critically ill, we're dealing with low blood pressure issues, then, you know, certainly might be something that we have to wait on. All right, now let's close out our, our kind of diving into the pharmacotherapy of HEFPEF. Got to talk about beta blockers, right? So do beta blockers have the same role or even a similar role in HEFPEF as they do in HEFREF? So the short answer is no. And probably if I had one big message here to listeners, it would be that we don't have to use beta blockers in HEFPEF patients as part of our guideline-directed medical therapy. And the reason for that is we've got good evidence to suggest that these, that the use of beta blockers and HEFPEF can lead to chronotropic incompetence, and it can be detrimental to their exercise tolerance, which is the worst thing that we could do, right? Now, we still need more research on the role of beta blockers in the HEFPEF population. So I don't think that it's completely, you know, a done deal, but as it stands right now, we just don't have great evidence to routinely use beta blockers uh, in this population. Beta blockers are also not great antihypertensives, right? So again, I mentioned hypertension is quite common in these patients. Um, I'd much rather reach for the MRA than a beta blocker, uh, especially if we're dealing with difficult to manage uh, hypertension. Now, there's a caveat as there is with everything, right? So in patients, that have a recent myocardial infarction, particularly in the past three years, patients with angina, patients with atrial fibrillation who require rate control, then yeah, we should absolutely keep that beta blocker on board or make sure that they're on a beta blocker. So, but the use there is not to change the trajectory of HEFPEF, it's to manage those other comorbidities. Beta blockers aren't great for hypertension, Dave. I, we need to yell that from the mountaintops. For I, when I, I when I uh, see people start a metoprolol 25 BID for someone who's hypertensive, it, I, it, you see my I'm having an aneurysm as they're talking sometimes. So we need to we need a, a PSA on on that specific issue. 
completely agree. Maybe we can make some t-shirts or something too. <laughs> so a lot of the, a lot of the listeners are either like learners or a lot of us are in like the critical care world. So from your perspective, what advice can you give to us about navigating HEFPEF maintenance therapy and, and possibly transitions of care issues? Are there, are there things that you see on the ambulatory side of things that, that are things that we could possibly shore up from an inpatient side of things? Yeah. So, you know, just like with, you know, a pharmacist really in any setting, right, is clean the medications up. Um, look for the, you know, is there an indication? You know, if you see that they're trying to be sent out on that beta blocker and they don't have any of those other indications that I mentioned, right? Like, let's prevent that. Because if that patient's discharged and if they deal with some of that beta blocker associated fatigue or other, you know, side effects, and maybe they stop a bunch of their medications, like I've seen that cascade happen too many times. Um, and making sure that they're at least on an ARB or an ARNI or, you know, that's at least in the care plan. Don't be afraid to get guideline-directed medical therapy started during the hospital stay. This has been probably the biggest shift just in the past year or so where we do have evidence that we can safely get this therapy, these therapies started on the inpatient side. And if we do that, the likelihood that they'll still be on it when they come to me is much higher. I'm going to be able to up-titrate their medications uh, much faster and get them at max tolerated doses and then bend that curve on hospital readmissions and then hopefully have some impact on mortality. Now, of course, you know, the insurance coverage is again, the elephant in the room. Um, and so, you know, figuring out at your institution, uh, a process for trying to help understand, uh, what those barriers might be and, and how to ensure that these patients can be discharged on medications that they can't afford. Cause I also see patients who they're discharged on, you know, just a Cadillac medication regimen. Um, but then at a two week follow-up, uh, you know, they're like, yeah, I'm supposed to refill all of these and I don't have, you know, several hundred dollars to pay for all these copays. So whether it's engaging with, uh, you know, social work, um, or even, you know, pharmacy utilizing pharmacy technicians, having a process to help prepare patients, uh, to kind of navigate that post discharge, especially those first couple of weeks and making sure they're on medications that they can afford. Um, it would be incredibly helpful and, and help with long-term outcomes as well. Yeah. I mean, when I was in pharmacy school, we, we had a, a scenario where you had to take the pills, right? They were, I think they were jelly beans or something as if you had HEFREF or HEFPEF, yes. right? And we're in the medical field. So imagine that patient who just gets diagnosed has all these things and has no medical background, right? It's a lot. So having some sort of process, I think is a really, really great idea. And if, and if we're, if you don't have a process now, you got to get on this folks. We are heart failure and readmissions and discharge counseling and things is such a big thing. Um, that's, you know, becoming more of the standard is making sure that you, you do those things, making sure you have all their discharge lists and all that stuff kind of tied up. So in your opinion, what is the biggest unanswered question in the management of HEFPEF? Because you've done a good job of, of in our discussion, delineating where we don't have a lot of evidence or we may have, you know, it's, it's new or emerging data. What would you say is our biggest question right now? That honestly is a tough question, and I think certainly there are aspects related to, uh, you know, half-half, are there different phenotypes? Do we treat 
the phenotypes differently. But ultimately, I think the biggest unanswered question is, you know, what intervention is going to bend the mortality curve, right? Uh, because we, we still aren't quite there yet. And the closest thing we have is certainly the SLT2 inhibitors, which if you look at the meta-analysis of heart failure trials, they did see a 20% reduction in a composite of cardiovascular death and heart failure hospitalization when they combined patients that had heart failure with that mildly reduced DF and HEF-PEF patients. And so, uh, you know, maybe if the studies were a little bit longer, you know, maybe we would see some decrease in mortality, but mm. we don't have, you know, an intervention that has a robust, clear effect on cardiovascular mortality. And I think that that's really the next frontier for managing HEF-PEF. What would you say are some of the big, like the large or important studies that you kind of have circled that you're you're waiting for the results that that the listeners can kind of keep their eyes peeled for as well? Yeah, I, I think the good news uh, is that there are now a couple hundred registered clinical trials ongoing in the HEF-PEF population. There are dozens of therapeutic interventions in the pipeline. So I think that, you know, the likelihood that we, we have better available tools for these patients in the future is, is much better than it's ever been. Two specific studies, and these are maybe a little bit outside the box, but I think that, you know, I, they're some of the more intriguing approaches. And so one is the STEP-HEF-PEF trial, and this is evaluating once-weekly semaglutide, um, the GLP-1 uh, receptor agonist, in those with HEF-PEF and obesity. And this is the first trial to really look at whether or not weight loss can actually improve symptoms and exercise capacity in HEFPEF patients. And this trial was actually being presented at the European Society of Cardiology meeting at the end of August. So I'm very excited to see those results. The other one is somewhat related is rehab HEFPEF. And we know that cardiac rehabilitation is immensely helpful in patients with HEFREF, right? We're talking about big improvement in outcomes, and we're still struggling to get patients to go to cardiac rehab. We don't have, uh, you know, a strong evidence base for cardiac rehab in HEFPEF, and as a result, it's not well covered by insurance, right? So we can't really offer this. And if you think about these patients that are deconditioned, they have poor exercise tolerance, you would think that a, a good cardiac rehab program would be really helpful. So I think this is a great trial just because we also want to be able to offer non-pharmacological interventions to our patients. Now, the rehab HEFPEF trial won't have results for a few more years, um, but it's another one of those trials to look for. I mean, the idea that that there's hundreds of studies that are currently ongoing for a disease state that you'd you'd argue was was almost a forgotten like brother, uh-huh. right? That HEFREF got all of the press, got all of the studies. And the HEFPEF was really succumbed to that that one paragraph at the end of the guideline, right? Or that last page that's like, here are these patients. We don't really know a lot. Da, 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 da. And now, right, this is a huge focus. So what a uh what a positive turn for these for patients that that are that have HEFPEF. Um I mean Dave, what an awesome job of of going through not only talking about the guidelines themselves, but going through all the, the nuances of making that decision pathway and things. What are, from your perspective, taking 
you know, thinking of our, our take home points, what are some of the biggest things, you know, maybe focusing on two to three that you want the listeners to think about when, when thinking about the management of patients with HEF-PEF? So you alluded to it uh, a little bit just now, but number one is that HEF-PEF is just as important as HEF-REF. <laughs> and in fact, right, the, the incidence of HEF-PEF is rising rapidly. Uh, don't think these patients are somehow immune to hospitalizations and mortality. You know, there used to be this perception that HEF-PEF was heart failure light, right? Like it's not that huge of a deal uh, when in fact it is. Um, number two, you know, diagnosis is really key here. And, and certainly while, you know, pharmacists may not play a huge role there, I think it's important to um, be able to help our colleagues remember to consider those half-path mimics as part of the diagnostic workup and making sure that, uh, you know, we've confirmed, you know, uh, that this patient has half-path and that we've ruled out, especially the non-cardiac mimics. And then the third point um, would really be around treatment. And Treatment for HFPEF should really be centered around the SOT2 inhibitors. So to me, and it's, it's illustrated this way in the expert consensus document, you know, the SOT2 inhibitor is sort of the core. And then we're going to build around that other therapies based on individual patient characteristics. So we're going to use loop diuretics if they're volume overloaded to reduce congestion and improve symptom control. We're going to utilize MRAs and an ARNI or ARB. Uh, to help reduce the risk of hospitalizations and improve symptoms. And we're going to limit the use of beta blockers because, again, they really don't have a huge role in the HEPF population. So those would be the three key points. Well, Dave, thank you so much for, for joining me. Wow, what a, what a master class in talking about um, all the nuances that, that um, go along with our management of patients with you know, heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. And I'd be, I'd be remiss not to bring up, um, looks like it probably got published about, about a month ago, a, um, article that you had published in JACCP talking about is the clinical pharmacist designation still relevant. So completely different from our discussion today, but I just want to highlight that, that I a hundred percent encourage the listeners to look at this, to really talk about it. Cause I think that is a, a future of pharmacy and talking about, pharmacists, clinical pharmacists, clinical pharmacy specialists, all those differences. So Dave, I want to give a quick plug to that awesome JACCP article that you wrote, but I appreciate you taking, taking the time to join us today. I'm sure you're a very, very busy man. So thank you so much for sharing all your, your thoughts, ideas, and time. We greatly appreciate you. Thank you for having me. It was really great discussion and a lot of fun. And I uh, hope your listeners, uh, are now much more uh, cognizant of HEF-PEF. And, and uh, again, just thanks so much for having me. Another huge thanks to Dave Dixon for joining me today. Um, if you enjoyed this as much as I did, be sure to reach out to him at VCU DPOS chair. Um, and then, of course, let me know what you think at pharmacy to dose, pharmacy to dose at gmail.com. That reference list writes in the episode description as well as the website pharmacytodose.com. And until next time, I'm Nick Peters, and this is Pharmacy to Dose, the Critical Care Podcast. QXMD builds mobile solutions that drive evidence-based care in clinical practice. So check out Read for easy access to research personalized for you. Calculate over 500 easy-to-use decision support tools and learn to earn CME online in minutes per day. 
Try them today at qxmd.com slash apps. Again, that is qxmd.com slash APPS. The Critical Care PRN optimizes drug therapy outcomes by promoting excellence and innovation in clinical pharmacy practice, research, and education. For more information, go to critprn.accp.com. Again, that is critprn.accp.com. The podcast provides general information only and does not offer individualized medical or professional healthcare services, including pharmaceutical advice. The contents and materials in the podcast are not intended to be a substitute for inpatient pharmaceutical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Use of the contents and materials on the podcast does not constitute a pharmacist-patient relationship. As a result, the information in and materials linked to this podcast are applied at the user or patient's own risk. Users and patients should consult their physician or personal healthcare professional. Users or patients should not ignore or delay seeking care because of something they heard on this podcast. In case of an emergency, the user or patient should contact their physician, call nine one one, or go to the nearest medical emergency facility. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are those of the host and guests and should not be interpreted to reflect the official position or policy of ACCP or the Critical Care PRN. ACP and the critical care period disclaim any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or any other damages, including without limitation, loss of profits arising out of any use of reference to, reliance on, or inability to use the podcast, its contents, and materials.